Section 17 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Oppositions of Science It is taken for granted, in many quarters, that there is a wide and growing gulf between science and Christian faith. This impression fostered by such books as Draper's Conflict Between Religion and Science, White's Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, and now Foster's finality of the Christian religion, is commonly accompanied by the belief, often by the bold assertion, that the general attitude of scientific men is one of alienation from Christianity. While criticism has been undermining belief in the Bible from within, science, it is assumed, has been demonstrating its irreconcilability with the actual constitution of things in the outward world. The whole array of sciences is brought in as witness against the Bible. The Copernican astronomy, it is alleged, has destroyed its view of the cosmos. Geology has disproved its cosmogony and view of the age of the earth. Anthropology has similarly confuted its teaching on the age of man. Evolution has taken the ground from its belief in Eden and a pure beginning of the race. Once it is realized, say the objectors, that the earth is not the center of the universe, but a mere speck in the infinity of worlds, that the world existed for untold ages before man's advent that man himself is a slow development from inferior forms, and appeared as far back as one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, or five hundred thousand years ago, that his original condition was one of brutishness, rising into savagery, then after long struggling into civilization, the whole scheme of Christianity based on the idea that our planet was the peculiar scene of God's revelations, of the fall and redemption of man, and of the incarnation of God's Son for the purposes of that redemption, sinks in irretrievable ruin. Advancing knowledge has given it its death-blow. Part 1. It may be of some service if I attempt in this paper to show that such statements are extremely wide of the mark, and that neither Christianity nor the Bible are in the slightest danger from any results that genuine science has succeeded in establishing. There are certain things, however, which it is desirable I should say at the outset on this alleged conflict between the Christian religion and science. The first is 
that much which passes under the name of science is not science at all, but crude and unwarranted speculation, and often extremely bad philosophy. This is peculiarly true of that remarkable mixture of scientific facts, rash theorizing, and bad metaphysics met with in the works of the Genesivant Haeckel, recently popularized among us. Haeckel sets himself to disprove, on scientific grounds, the cardinal religious ideas of God, the soul, immortality. But the weapons by which he assails these ideas are not derived from anything properly called science, but from a semi-materialistic theory of monism, a so-called law of substance, which scarcely anyone possessed of a smattering of philosophic knowledge at the present day would discredit himself by countenancing. It is a singular fact that by confession of his own pages, most of Haeckel's chief authorities, Virchow, Dubois-Raymond, Wundt, Romanus, etc., later in life deserted him and became advocates of an opposite and spiritualistic interpretation of the universe, Romanus becoming decidedly Christian. Wundt, in the second edition of his work on human and animal psychology, declared that the first edition, in which he had advocated views like Haeckel's, quote, weighed on him as a kind of crime, from which he longed to free himself as soon as possible, unquote. A second thing I desire to observe is that the alleged divorce between scientific thought and Christian belief in our own time is, to say the least, a gross exaggeration. Multitudes of scientific men themselves, if they were consulted, would resent the imputation. I give two illustrations. When, many years ago, 1879, Mr. Fraude had indulged in the usual declamation about the ablest, the most advanced, the best scientific thinkers, having abandoned Christianity and even theistic belief, the late Professor Tate of Edinburgh, as distinguished a representative of physical science as then lived, replied in an article in the International Review with, quote, a prompt and decided no, unquote. He asked of any competent authority who were the advanced, the best, and the ablest scientific thinkers of the immediate past, or of that time, and after giving his list of those whom he considered such, he declared them to be on the side of faith. He summed up, quote, The assumed incompatibility of religion and science has been so often and confidently asserted in recent times that it has come to be taken for granted by the writers of leading articles, etc., and it is, of course, perpetually thrust before their two trusting readers. But the whole thing is a mistake, 
and a mistake so grave that no truly scientific man runs in britain at least the smallest risk of making it with a few and these very singular exceptions the true scientific men and true theologians of the present day have not found themselves under the necessity of quarrelling lord kelvin has recently spoken in the same strain for himself and others my other example is from the late george g romanis who after a long eclipse of faith died a devout believer in full communion with the church of england in his posthumously published thoughts on religion he has left the avowal that one thing which specially impressed him was the large number of christian men of scientific attainments in his own university of cambridge Quote, the curious thing he says is that all the most illustrious names were ranged on this side of orthodoxy sir w thompson sir george stokes professors tate adams clerk maxwell and bailey not to mention a number of lesser lights such as routh todd hunter ferrers etc were all avowed christians unquote. page one thirty seven it may be thought perhaps that it is different now romanus himself with his return to faith is an instance to the contrary but generally i should be disposed to say that the conditions were less favorable to faith a quarter of a century ago than they are in the more spiritual atmosphere of to-day i have the privilege of the acquaintance of many professors and teachers of science and the majority of them are christian men there is yet another fact which it is important i should emphasize the assumption commonly made in discussions of this sort is that in the conflicts of science and religion it is invariably science that comes off the victor this however is a proposition which needs much qualification it would be truer to say that in the alleged conflicts of science and religion the victory is seldom or never all on one side if theology makes mistakes so assuredly does science progress has been accomplished in science as in theology by the gradual unlearning of errors and discarding of defective theories for new and more adequate ones if theologians looked askance on copernican astronomy or on darwinian theories of evolution they were not alone in this the science of their time did the same the foolish attacks of theologians on science have been more than paralleled by the foolish attacks of scientific men on theology what is more to the point the opposition of religion to new scientific theories has not always been wholly wrong it will be seen as we proceed that many of the theories to which defenders of religion took exception were really in their original form liable to objection 
and have since, by the progress of science itself, been greatly modified. This is specially true of the Darwinian theory of evolution, and of the anthropological speculations connected with it. Theologians were not unjustified in the strictures they passed on the specific Darwinian theory with its apotheosis of fortuity. In the progress of discussion, it is not too much to say that the objections they took to the sufficiency of that theory have in the main been found valid. One further caution I would venture to give, that is, that in science, as in criticism, it is well not to allow the mind to be overborne by the mere weight of expert opinion. Experts may err, and do err, and their judgments often seriously conflict. Examples might easily be given of the danger of trusting too implicitly to untested assertions even in plain matters of fact. Part 2 Looking now first at the bearings of science on religion on the wide scale, can we say that science has destroyed any of the great fundamental ideas of the religion of the Bible? God, the soul, the future life, moral and spiritual government of the world. Or has it not rather brought manifold confirmations to these ideas? Has it succeeded, for example, in breaking down the barrier between the spiritual and the material, the vital and the non-vital, the free and the necessitated, or in banishing from the interpretation of nature the ideas of creative power and of wise and purposeful action? Everyone acquainted with the best scientific thought knows that the opposite is the case. The trend at present is all in the direction of a spiritualistic interpretation of nature. The idea of teleology, ends, design, final cause, has had a remarkable revival in connection with evolutionism, in opposition to naturalistic theories. Professor Foster may be our witness here, for he devotes a whole chapter of his book to illustration of the fact, and what he says is only the echo of what the men of insight are proclaiming everywhere. Footnote. Chapter 6 of Professor Foster's work is entitled, quote, The Naturalistic and the Religious View of the World, unquote. It is really largely indebted to a German work by Rudolf Otto mentioned below, Naturalistisch und Religiöse Weltensicht. This book is now translated in the Crown Theological Library under the title Naturalism and Religion. End of footnote. The attempts at a mechanical or merely chemical explanation of life have broken down utterly. The declaration in May 1903 of Lord Kelvin, than whom no man stands higher in physical and mathematical science, 
that science not only did not deny, but positively affirmed the reality of creative power and directive intelligence, will long be remembered. Take the question of the soul and the future life. Science, of course, cannot make positive assertions on immortality, but it lends at least powerful support to that belief in the distinction which every advance in deeper knowledge of ourselves enables us to make between spiritual mind and material brain, between our souls and the corporal organism which meanwhile they inhabit. I leave aside the strange region explored by physical research and keep to open everyday facts of common experience. And here, if one thing emerges more clearly than another, it is the fallacy of a materialistic explanation of mental phenomena and the truth of the impassable distinction between mind and brain. I will not use my own words, but will quote those of one of the acutest of recent German writers, Rudolf Otto, on the subject. Consciousness, thought, he says, nay, the humblest feeling of pleasure or pain, or the simplest sensuous perception, are nothing that can be compared with matter and force, with movements of parts of masses. They are a foreign, perfectly inexplicable guest in this world of matter, molecules, and elements. Even if we could follow most precisely and minutely the play of the nervous processes, with which feeling, consciousness, pain, or pleasure are connected, if we could make our brain transparent and magnify its cells to houses, so that wandering among them and glancing around we could count and watch all that takes place and follow even the dance of the molecules, we should never see pain, pleasure, thought, but always only bodies and their movements. A thought, say the recognition that two times two equals four, is not long or broad, not above or below, not to be measured or weighed by inches or pounds like matter, but is something entirely different, which must be known from inner experience, yet is known from this far better and more immediately than anything else, and which can absolutely be compared with nothing but itself." Unquote. Is it, then, in the idea of a reign of law that science strikes athwart belief in a revelation from God undeniably involving miraculous elements. So, as we saw before, think Professor Foster and a multitude of others in these times. But their confident assertion that law excludes miracle would not have been endorsed by such thinkers as Professor Huxley or J. S. Mill, and is without justification in either science or reason. The Bible also recognizes law in nature. Quote, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thou hast established the earth 
and it abideth. They abide this day according to thine ordinances, for all things are thy servants. Unquote. Psalms 119, verse 89. But law is God's servant, not his master, and nothing prevents his acting above, without, or beyond it, if the highest ends of his government call for such action. We may go further and say that in the history of nature itself, science reveals to us facts which rational thought can only construe as miracles. Nature's course is marked by the breaking forth of ever new powers, as in the transition from inorganic to organic, and the founding of higher orders of existence, for the explanation of which we are compelled to go directly back to the central creative cause. Footnote. Sabatier has said, quote, At each step nature surpasses itself by a mysterious creation that resembles a true miracle in relation to an inferior stage, unquote, and infers that, quote, in nature there is a hidden force, an incommensurable potential energy, an ever-open, unexhausted fount of apparitions, at once magnificent and unexpected, unquote. Philosophy of Religion, page 84. Call this power God, and the analogy with miracle is complete. End of footnote. In another way, science does something to remove the offense of miracle by its constant discoveries of the depths of hidden powers in nature, of which omnipotence can avail itself for the accomplishment of its purposes, thus softening the transition from natural to supernatural. But no powers of mere nature can avail for the restoring of sight to the totally blind, the instantaneous cleansing of the flesh of a leper, or the raising of the dead to life, so that the idea of miracle, in the stricter sense, remains. Yet such acts are neither beyond the power of God nor unworthy of Him, if sufficiently weighty reasons, of which he alone can judge, are present for its exercise. There is a further difficulty connected with law on which a word, and it can only be a word, may here be said. Does not a reign of law, it may be asked, at the very least, exclude special providence and prayer, both elements in the religious conception of the Bible. The difficulty is to many minds a very real one, yet help, I think, may be got from considering that laws and forces of nature of themselves explain nothing, apart, that is, from the way in which these laws and forces are combined and cooperate to the production of special results. As the Apostle puts it, all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8, verse 28. 
To borrow a phrase for which J. S. Mill acknowledges his indebtedness to Dr. Thomas Chalmers, in order to explain nature as we find it, we need to take account not only of laws, but of the collocation of laws. A machine, for example a printing press, produces its results through the operation of laws. Yet the laws would accomplish nothing were it not that the machine is put together in a certain way, and that the forces at work in it are regulated and directed to a certain end. Laws alone, therefore, do not explain the universe. There is needed plan, direction, guidance. There is needed the mind and the hand behind the machine, the combination of laws and forces guiding it in the work it has to do. When it is remembered that the mind behind nature, the mind which has the whole plan at every instant before it, is that of the infinitely wise author of nature himself, it will be seen what large room there is for a providence as special as Jesus teaches us to believe in. Matthew 6, verses 30 to 34, 10, verses 29 to 30. A prayer as effective as his promises are great. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11, and Mark 9, verse 24, Luke 18, verse 1 to 7, and John 14, verses 13 and 14. Part 3. From these general considerations on the scientific conception of nature, we are brought back to the difficulties presumed to arise from the special sciences, some of the chief of which may now receive attention. The result, I believe, will be to show that there is as little reason to fear for the Bible in this special sphere as in the general. I mentioned in the opening paper that few Christians are now troubled in mind, even in the least degree, by the stupendous enlargement of our knowledge of the physical universe through the discoveries of astronomy. Yet there are scientific men, with scholars in other departments, who seriously persuade themselves that the acceptance of the Copernican system is absolutely fatal to the ordinary Christian scheme. Quoting, The earth, says Professor Foster, is but an ordinary satellite of a planet, which is itself only a star among numberless stars, a mere vanishing point in the illimitable all, this grain of sand on the shore of the infinite sea. How could centrality and supremacy be still accorded to it? And that which takes place upon its surface, how could it be decisive of the fate of the shoreless all? Unquote. Page 165. Footnote. It is not easy to see how, with his own view of the Christian religion and of God's great and final revelation to the world in Christ, Dr. Foster is in much better case than others for meeting this objection in his eyes 
so formidable. End of footnote. How could such an insignificant point in space be conceived of as the theatre of the grand divine drama of incarnation and redemption? This is the so-called astronomical objection to which Dr. Chalmers sought to reply in his astronomical discourses, and which has so often been replied to since. It was an objection keenly felt at first by believers in the old Ptolemaic astronomy, which made the earth to be the center of the universe. Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, John Owen, John Wesley even, all opposed the new doctrine as contrary to Scripture. They were mistaken. It has now long been recognized that what enlarges our thoughts of God's universe enlarges our thoughts of God himself. It has come to be perceived that these good men made a wrong use of Scripture, and that it is no part of the function of the Bible to anticipate modern physical discoveries. The Bible is no manual of 16th or 20th century astronomy, but speaks of the world and of natural appearances from the point of view of the ordinary observer, as indeed we ourselves do when we speak of the sun rising and setting, and of the movements of the moon and stars across the heavens. Does anyone now dream, for example, of interpreting the language of the Bible in the nineteenth psalm in any other way? The Copernican discovery helped men to get the right point of view in relation to the Bible, as well as the right point of view in the relation of the earth to the sun. But does not the Copernican system in itself, it may be said, conflict with the biblical teaching on man's place in the universe, and with God's great love for him and care for him in his salvation? I do not think that, once the true state of the case was clearly grasped, Christian people in any great numbers have ever felt that it did. It is to be remembered that even when the world was believed to be the center of creation, man was not thought of as the only intelligent being in the universe. Beyond this visible system were the heavens of heavens, peopled with innumerable hosts of spiritual intelligences, quote, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, unquote standing many of them in the immediate light of God's presence. The change was not very great when the visible universe also was thought of as possibly tenanted by rational beings more nearly resembling man himself. What, as regards the main fact, does it matter even if it were so? As I have put the point elsewhere, quote, be the physical magnitude of the universe what it may, it remains the fact that on this little planet life has effloresced into reason, that we have here a race of rational beings who bear God's image and are capable of knowing, loving, and obeying Him. 
even supposing that there were other inhabited worlds, or any number of them, this does not detract from the soul's value in this world. Mind, if it has the powers we know it has, is not less great, because other minds may exist elsewhere. Man is not less great, because he is not alone great." Unquote. It does not exalt, but really derogates from, the perfection of God to suppose that he will love man less, or do less for his salvation, because the universe holds other objects of his love and care. Is it not the part of the good shepherd to leave the ninety and nine, and seek out the one lost sheep? Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. This alone is sufficient to meet the objection, but science itself now forces on us another question of surprising import. Is it, after all, the case that the universe is infinite in extent, and that it teems with worlds peopled with intelligences, like to, or greater than, our own? So, on a priori grounds, it is often supposed. But those who have read Dr. A. R. Wallace's recent book, Man's Place in the Universe, will know how much courage it takes to answer that question in the affirmative. Dr. Wallace's book is nothing less than the reaffirmation of the thesis on what claim to be grounds of, quote, the new astronomy, unquote, that our Earth, or rather the solar system of which it forms a part, is situated somewhere at or near the center of the stellar universe shown by him to be limited in extent, and that according to every probability the inhabitants of this planet are the only rational intelligences in the worlds the telescope reveals. The book has been criticized on astronomical and other grounds, but on the whole the author seems to have made out his case that our system is situated in the medial plane of the Milky Way and near the center of it, and that the constitution and conditions of the other planets of our system, and of the more distant parts of the universe now known to us by the telescope and spectroscope, are entirely unfavorable to the idea of their being the abodes of intelligent life. If such geocentric speculations are admitted, what becomes of the astronomical objection. Science throws an altogether unexpected weight into the scale against its cogency. End of section 17